Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. Today we are going to be talking about assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation is when you know that you presently are in Christ and not under condemnation for past sins. It is knowing that you are saved in that sense, if you want to simplify it. And while there are some people who say that you cannot have assurance of salvation, it is absolutely biblical that you can have salvation, assurance of salvation. Um, and, And kind of what we're focusing on in this lesson is the idea the ideas of eternal security or once saved always saved or in the calvinistic vein of things perseverance of the saints um, these systems uh, doctrinal ideas teach the idea that once you have repented and been born again and some some people don't even include repentance in that once you have been born again and have begun to walk by faith in Christ that nothing can ever change that state of salvation. Uh, eternal security, it says that you're eternally secure in Christ, which I, in certain contexts, would have absolutely no problem with. A believer is secure in Christ. Um, but that begs the question about who a believer is and other things. The idea of once saved, always saved is kind of a a different vein of it, and we'll get into that in just a minute. And then the Calvinistic form of it, perseverance of the saints, kind of comes at the same conclusion, but from a different perspective, because theirs is an entire system as opposed to an individual doctrinal teaching. And so it presupposes or assumes other ideas to maintain their view. Now, there are diverse opinions uh, about how this can be. That is, there uh, that once you have repented and been born again by the Spirit of God and have begun to walk by faith in Christ for your salvation, that you can never change that state of salvation. There's different opinions about how this can be. And among them are the following commonly held opinions. So these are variations of this viewpoint that you will hear, and they may be worded slightly differently, but these two are the most common, uh, almost universally. Uh, The first one being that if a person continues in sin unrepentant, if they have been truly born again, they will still go to heaven. That is one of them. Um, It pretty much says that if you're a true believer, you have truly been born again, and yet you continue in sin unrepentant, that you will still go to heaven. That is one form of it. And I know people that would have, that do hold to uh, some form of eternal security that, that they would absolutely say, well, no, that's not the case. But this view um, pretty much uh, God rewards disobedient believers by taking them to heaven early. And they, people may have an, a problem with wording it that way, but well, that's exactly what is being said. Uh, well, you still get to heaven, um, and so God rewards you by taking you to heaven early by your disobedience. Um, again, people will have a problem with wording it that way, but nevertheless, that's true according to that view. The second view, which at least in profession is what more people say they believe. It's not practically what most people act like they believe. Um, But this is the more Calvinistic interpretation. It says, a truly born-again person will never continue in sin unrepentant for very long because the Holy Spirit will bring them back. 
And again, that is the more Calvinistic interpretation. And there are those who are not Calvinists. There are those who they, they do not hold to any form of Calvinism, they say, um, that will still say that. And it will be, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So those are the two main forms, that if a truly born-again person continues in sin, they will still go to heaven even if they are unrepentant, and then the other form being that, well, a truly born-again person will not continue in sin because the Spirit of God will convict them and will draw them back. That is a separate concept than will convict them. People miss that. Of course, the Holy Spirit convicts people. The Holy Spirit convicts lost people. It doesn't mean He's bringing them to Him necessarily, Um, but that's a different conversation. So there is a lot that I can say about these views, but I want to focus on a very narrow part of this discussion to show a fundamental flaw in any doctrinal system that believes salvation is unconditional. Because when assurance of salvation is defined and applied biblically, then unconditional salvation, in any view, is necessarily false. And so what we're going to talk about today is why that is, I'm going to explain how that is after we spend some time defining biblical assurance of salvation, as the scriptures themselves clearly say, and then show why logically and scripturally, of course, it then shows that you cannot have an unconditional salvation. Because if you do, you then have to redefine what assurance of salvation is based on. So let's begin by just talking about biblical assurance of salvation um, in a nutshell, um, starting in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, which is a verse that most people, most conservative evangelical Christians, if you ask them about assurance of salvation, this is one of the first verses that will be brought up. Now, a Calvinist may bring up something more along the lines of first, uh, Philippians chapter 1, where it says, you know, he that hath begun a good work in you shall perform it until the day of Christ, um, because of their system of thinking. But even then, this will be one of the passages that is almost assure, um, no pun intended, almost assuredly brought up first to show that assurance of salvation is biblical. It's First John five thirteen, which says, "These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life." Right, and so it says, "He's written these things." That is the things within the book of First John, because it's book ended there in the first. John chapter 1, it says these things, and then 1 John chapter 5 says these things I have written unto you. So kind of bookending the entire book of 1 John, all these things that he says about how to identify the children of God and in order to have assurance of salvation, because you have to be able to identify Christians in order to have assurance. That should go without saying. And so he goes on to say, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So it's a present tense reality. You can know that you presently have eternal life. First uh, John chapter 1, verse 6 through 7. Uh, let's go, go through some of these passages to see what kinds of things John wrote about to have assurance of salvation. He says, First John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Again, we're just kind of going through this very quickly because I've done whole lessons on all of this before. First John chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 says that we have fellowship with God by walking in the light and not walking in darkness. First uh, John chapter two verses three through six says that one of the ways that we can know that we are in Christ, that is to have assurance, is we keep the commandments of God. First uh, John chapter one verse, uh, from, sorry, First John chapter two verses twenty nine says that we practice righteousness. Practice meaning that it is the general and consistent way 
that we live. It's not saying sinless perfectionism, but that the general tone of that life is that they practice righteousness, so they continue in righteousness. And again, not saying Christian Christian perfectionism or sinless perfection. That is not what it says. It says, just in the same way it says that... um, the next one, First John 3, 4 through 10, says that a believer does not continue in sin, but practice righteousness. First John 3, verses 4 through 10. And there were those who said, well, we can't know who the true Christians are. Well, that is an objectively false teaching, because in First John 3, verse 10, it says, in this the children of God are manifest, or obvious, or revealed, in that they practice righteousness. They do righteousness. Okay? And so if you say that, well, nobody knows who the real Christians are, I'm sorry, you are objectively wrong. Um, that is not what the Word of God says. Um, and then also First John 3, verse 24, it says, We keep His commandments, that is, believers. And so above all these things, we see that John's emphasis is that a believer can have assurance of their salvation when they keep God's commandments. And this is why Christ said in John chapter 8, verse 12, uh, where it says, Then Jesus spoke, again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world, He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. If you are walking in the light, as he is in the light, you have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John chapter 1, where it talks about that, verses 6 and 7, right? And it says that um, if you're following him, you're not walking in darkness. So you cannot be following Christ and be living in sin. You would then not be a follower of Christ, which means you would not be a Christian. The word Christian means follower of Christ or Christ-like. To be a disciple, there's no difference between being a believer and being a disciple. A disciple is somebody who walks after practices, acts in conformity to the teachings of their master. A Christian is a follower of the master, if you want to use that word, Rabbi Christ, the Rabbi Jesus, really, if you want to use that language. That's how the disciples referred to Christ. They called him master, right? They also refer to him as Lord. It's the same Greek word for master and Lord. Context would tell you which one is being emphasized. But John and Christ make very clear in the Scriptures that there is no such thing as a person who has assurance of their right relationship with God and continuing in sin. That is Now, that is not true. Now, we're not talking about a light switch kind of thing where salvation is this terribly fragile thing where, you know, I stub my toe, say a curse word, and therefore God's just waiting to smite me. No, there is conviction. There is drawing. But there is an important thing to remember that conviction does not mean that you will listen. That's why it says that you can sin unto death. Now, however somebody wants to define that, the very fact that you can resist God is clearly said in the book of Acts, that a believer can resist God is clearly seen by the commandments to not resist him, to not quench the Spirit, in 1 Thessalonians 5. And the only people who don't acknowledge that are people who don't want really to acknowledge that you are responsible to actually follow Christ. But nevertheless, cover to cover in the New Testament, and even if you include the, the pictures and the foreshadowings from the Old Testament, you see that God expects believers to actually follow him. And the outward manifestation of your right faith in God, your saving faith in Christ, is that there is a changed life. Otherwise, you can't identify false false prophets. That's why it says that you shall know them by their fruits. Talking for Matthew chapter 7, 
If you can't identify a believer, then you can't identify those who are not believers. And there's a lot of people who talk out of both sides of their mouth, not intentionally, but because they were told certain beliefs on the right hand in about salvation, and then they were told certain things on the left hand about assurance, right? And they haven't seen the contradictions between certain things that are said. Okay? Again, I can go off on that, but I'm going to try to get back on track to focus on this, okay? But Christ himself said that if you are following him, you are not walking in darkness, okay? And the result of that was that you will have the light of life. And you can say, well, you're talking about obedience leads to salvation. No, because I'm talking about a description of a, of a Christian, not a cause, okay? It is important to understand that we are talking about an objective and external thing that can be verified, a righteous life in general practice. Yes, of course, if you're a new believer, you need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but you are growing in righteousness and true holiness, right? And so this is what we're talking about here, this assurance of salvation. It is describing what a Christian life looks like and not how to become a Christian. So anybody who says, well, you're teaching salvation by works, no. Even Christ himself and the apostles over and over again emphasized that how do you identify a Christian? It's because they follow him, right? And it says if you're not following him, then you don't belong to him. And so how can you know them by their a false prophet by their fruits? Because they don't bring forth the fruits of righteousness, which is what is necessary for them to truly be a believer, right? A believer has the Spirit of God, right? If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his, Romans chapter 8. So when we're talking about assurance, it is basing it on a description, the external and objective description about what a Christian life looks like. That is, the, that is why John is emphasizing these things as the sign of assurance of salvation. And people say, well, assurance is based on this or that. Well, that's not what the Bible says, and that's what we're going to go into here in just a little bit. So all descriptions used for assurance of salvation for the believer must be present. I have to emphasize that. Some people, while there are several things that are said scripturally about how to identify a believer, that's right. It does say belief, right? It does say repentance, right? I'm emphasizing this one aspect for a reason, because it's wholly, almost wholly ignored. Or it is cast aside when the person wants to excuse disobedience. And this is very common amongst pastors because the amount of stress and pressure that is put on a pastor, a lot of people don't understand. There is a lot of stress, and it's very easy to almost get towards pragmatism. Well, what does this work or that work within the narrow field of what my denomination or church's uh, statement of faith says? And we need to be very careful about it. If you are in a position of teaching or pastoring or an elder of a church, you need to be very careful to not compromise just strictly what the Scripture says. Real church discipline, real accountability amongst the brethren within a fellowship. Because you will be tempted by the amount of pressure and stress put on you, not to mention the spiritual warfare that will be coming upon you for being a... a older brother, an elder in a congregation, you will be attacked more than the average person. Because if the enemy can get you to fall and compromise, then you will lead astray a congregation. But for a, what I mean by 
all the things that are necess- that the Bible says about assurance or how to identify a Christian must be there. What I mean is some people say, well, I believe, and therefore that's enough. And that's, they may not word it that way, but that's what they're intending. Well, that's nice. But if you say you believe, even if you do truly believe the gospel, and nevertheless you do not meet the other things that it says are for assurance of salvation or how to identify a believer, like they bring forth the fruits of righteousness, the fruits of salvation, the fruits of repentance, then you have no claim to be a believer. And now, if the Bible gives a list of, let's say for argument's sake, five specific things used to identify a believer and give assurance, then every one of them must be present for that person to be considered a believer. Now, I'm going to give you an analogy to help you understand this, okay? This is very important. People... And I remember this being the case for me, too, when I was younger. You can very easily just, like, almost try to excuse some things not being there. You can. So just listen to this illustration, and then I'll kind of help you to see why I'm using this illustration, okay? So let's say a man comes up to you and says, Sir, how can I identify an orange tree? And you proceed to answer, Well, it has green leaves, a trunk, it's organic, it grows out of the ground, and it has oranges in it, on it. And if the man came to you and said, look, an orange tree, and he points to a silly sight. There are green leaves stapled to a two-by-four. It is half buried in the ground, and, and there's a basket of oranges sitting on the top. And he says, orange tree. And you try to explain that, that no, the, the trunk must be made of wood. It is, he replies, because it's you know got a two-by-four. But no, real wood that is growing. And he's like, well, it's wood that was growing at one time. And you're like, well, but it's not still growing. And, and what about the oranges? They aren't growing on it, but they are on it, he says, you know, because they're sitting in a basket on it. And you're just, but this is not an orange tree. And the man answers, but this is all I have. I'm saying it's an orange tree. Now for clarity, consider this conversation. A man comes to you and says, Sir, how can I know that I'm truly saved? You proceed to answer, Well, if you believe the gospel, read and love his words, um, keep his commandments, and love other believers, among some other things, then you can have assurance that you are a believer. And he then says, I'm a believer. But you knowing this person, you say, Well, I don't mean to be insulting, but you're not a believer. And he says, Well, I came to an altar and I sincerely asked Jesus into my heart. And you're like, but, but do you believe the gospel as the Bible describes it? He goes, well, I did, but I'm not so sure that Jesus is the Son of God anymore. I mean, I saw a YouTube video talking about it. And you could say, well, you, then you're not a believer. You literally don't believe. But I try to keep his commandments. And you would respond because you know the person. I've seen you blaspheme. And aren't you living with your girlfriend out of wedlock? What about the fact that you don't believe the gospel? That's unbelief. And he says, well... I have done all those things in the past for a long while. I've just grown tired of all the rules. God loves me anyways. Besides, I'm eternally secure. Well, no, according to the Bible, you can only have assurance of salvation if you're keeping his commandments, among other things. And the man answers, well, I'm doing some things when I agree with them. I not only believe I'm saved, but other people tell me so also. Now, you might think that I'm taking things to 
a certain logical extension of these things, that it's a very blunt illustration. But I've had this conversation before. Now, what would some people say in response to this? Well, this comes back to what we said at the beginning. Some people would say, well, if he was truly born again, even though he's not living it, then he will still go to heaven. I've heard pastors say that. Others would say, well, if he was truly born again, then God will bring him back to repentance so that he gets right. And I've heard pastors say that. And finally, the most commonly repeated, well, that just means he was never truly saved to begin with. Hmm. Now this gets down to the crux of what we're going to talk about today. If that's the case, how can you ever have actual assurance of salvation? Now, let's talk about an important clarification. At this point, we need to make an important clarification. If you try to teach any form of unconditional salvation, then you must combine it, assurance of salvation, with some idea of once saved, always saved, or perseverance of the saints. You must necessarily move the goalposts about how to have assurance of salvation. And you might not even be aware that you're doing it. I remember in Bible college, I was not aware that that's what I was being taught to do. I was taught biblically what it says in 1 John, 1 John 5, 30. No, we can have assurance of salvation and everything. Well, if you bring forth the fruits. And then on the left hand, completely removed in my mind from that other aspect, I was taught a different thing regarding the security of the believer. They completely contradicted that. And I know most people have this same contradiction in their minds. So let's move through some of this. Um, or, or if you want to be, uh, some people say, well, I'm not moving the goalpost, you know, in order to have assurance of salvation. I'm not basing it on something else. Some more astute teachers, um, they make assurance of salvation dependent on once saved, always saved, eternal security, or Calvinism as a whole system. Uh, for instance, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, is regarding the Calvinistic form of it, uh, chapter 19.2 says, quote, The perseverance of the saints, and this is a Calvinistic form of it, depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit of, and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. End quote. So what does the Westminster Confession of Faith say? Well, in essence, your perseverance doesn't depend upon you. If God has effectually called you, then he will be the one who does all the work. And they take many passages, which are otherwise good promises, and misapply them. You know, why do you why care about context? Reinterpreting them because of their own definitions. And this is the, if you begin to believe, then you will always believe mentality. That's, that's logical fallacy. If you say... Well, what if someone becomes unwilling to follow Christ anymore? Um, Calvinists will usually then say, God will make you willing. In their system, and it is a system, you are a pawn to be caused to do God's will any way it goes. And in their view, if you are unwilling, then it means that you were probably never saved to begin with. Now, generally speaking, a good Calvinist will say, that if someone is living in unrepentant sin, that they cannot have assurance of salvation. This would be agreed with by a number of once saved, always saved teachers in principle. 
though in practice is another thing entirely. I have seen too many times and heard from too many pastors, preachers, and teachers the complete lack of regard for what the Bible actually says about this when it suits them. Um, and But at that point, it is then agreed upon by many Calvinists and others that a true believer will persevere in the faith, that is, keep God's commandments, until the end. And I want you to pay attention to that, until the end. That is the emphasis of the perseverance saints, the Calvinistic side of it, right? Until the end. That is kind of referencing, if you want to pick a broad view of that phrase, is that this kind of form of it that says that believers will be actually generally practicing righteousness, it necessitates or makes necessary that that person is abiding in Christ. They are obeying Christ at the time of their death. I would absolutely agree with that. But here's some quotes, and I want you to think about some of these quotes from some Calvinistic and some are just non-Calvinistic, but eternal security or once they would always save teachers in uh, here's a quote from Robert A. Morey. He says, quote, True believers can have a full assurance of their eternal salvation. And he references 1 John 5, verses 11-13. This would be impossible if we could lose our salvation. Well, that's a fallacy. Um, Robert P. Leitner, quote, God's security and man's assurance are companion truths when it comes to the believer's salvation. They may be viewed as two sides of the same coin. Security is what God provides for the believing sinner. It is an aspect of his great gift of salvation. Assurance is the certainty the believer has when he accepts God's security. Okay, that's interesting. I'm going to read a couple more, and then I'm going to talk about some of the obvious things that are just straight unbiblical about these things that are being said, okay? Just pay attention to how they are referencing assurance and where it comes from. Uh, Here's Robert Leitner again. He says, Those who have trusted Christ as Savior are set apart by God the moment they are saved. Thus, they are secure. And assurance comes by accepting that position in the Savior. Again, the two truths are not identical, but they are related to each other. Uh, Here's um, A.W. Pink, uh, Calvinist. The final perseverance of the saints, that's eternal security, is one of the grand and distinctive blessings proclaimed by the gospel, being an integral part of salvation itself. And therefore, any outcry against this doctrine is an attack upon the very foundations of the the believer's comfort and assurance. So if you even question eternal security, he says you're attacking the foundation of a believer's assurance. Hmm. Uh, here's Jay Vernon. He got into a lot of uh, uh, got a lot of backlash for this quote that he said on the radio. Jay Vernon McGee said, "He never lets go. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy your salvation." Someone said, "All the way to heaven is heaven." I'm sorry, that's very unbiblical. It's just sit back, relax, and enjoy your salvation. Whenever Paul said to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, that's just or strive to enter in at the straight gate. And he says, "For many will seek to enter in and shall not be able." I'm sorry, but that's just a plain, unbiblical statement. It's false teaching is what that is by definition. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, he says, he puts it very clearly. He says, election gives assurance of salvation. So in essence, in a Calvinistic system, election is salvation. And scripturally, of course, I have no problem with the doctrine of election. It's just Calvinists don't have a biblical view of the doctrine of election. And so in essence, what James Montgomery Boyce is saying is salvation gives assurance of salvation. 
Um, A.W. Pink again, he says, Eternal security is the truth that establishes a Christian in assurance of salvation. Now, out of all of those, all of those quotes, you see how many teachers either combine assurance with their particular view of once saved, always saved, eternal security, or perseverance of the saints. Or they make assurance based on a belief in them, neither of which is biblical. Neither of which is biblical. Because assurance has to do with whether or not you presently are in Christ. The ideas of eternal security, once they always say, or personal saints, has to do with what the future will be. And so what many of them are saying is, if you don't believe in our particular doctrinal view that you will always be in Christ, therefore you cannot have any assurance that you are presently in Christ. That's literally what they teach. So they don't believe that you can have any assurance of salvation unless you believe their doctrines. And that's not what the scriptures say. Um, let's think. What does 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 6 say? By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one he, who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That is, as Jesus walked. The scriptures only make assurance, at least in the most clear, by extension, you can, of course, you know, accepting the gospel, repentance and turning away from these things, but all of those are still commandments. So really, when we say keep the commandments, it encompasses, like in an umbrella way, every other thing you can think about regarding how to identify a believer, because accepting the gospel is a commandment. There's repentance and faith, which are commandments. You know, God commandeth all, all men everywhere to repent, it says in the book of Acts. Um, to turn away from sin, that's a commandment. To continue in righteousness, that's a commandment. Even to pray, to seek the Lord, these are commandments, right? To have a desire to seek the Lord. In essence, if you in certain ways in which you want to word it, that's a commandment. So really, any other thing you can think about regarding how to identify a Christian is, can be filed under keep his commandments. And so the scriptures only lay out as the real plumb line, if you want to use that word, for assurance of salvation is, are you keeping his commandments? Are you abiding in Christ? So to make it based on anything else is false teaching. I mean, it's objectively false teaching. Now here's the point. I'm going to go over a couple quotes, but I want to emphasize that there's a contradiction and a point I want to really emphasize, okay? Consider this quote from John MacArthur, notable Calvinist. He's not a consistent Calvinist, but he's a Calvinist. Um, in his book, Faith Works, he says, quote, John's purpose statement is explicit in 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. There the apostle spells out his intention. He is not trying to make believers doubt. He wants them to have full assurance. And we, we would agree with that statement. I would agree with that statement wholeheartedly. But because of his Calvinism, he, goes also, he also goes on to say these things, quote, in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, he says, quote, For one ultimately and finally to fall away from the faith proves that person never really was redeemed to begin with. Oh, you were never saved to begin with. Uh, same book, page 98. No matter how convincing a person's testimony might seem, once he becomes apostate, he has demonstrated irrefutably that he was never saved. 
Well, you would never say to begin with. Well, here's the thing. An apostate is somebody who leaves something that they were formerly in. It's literally what the word means. It is a rebel to apostasia, to be removed or go away from a previously held state. You cannot be an apostate unless you were a believer. Um, uh, Faith Works, page 189, he says, But no true believer can fall into settled unbelief or permanent reprobation. So you may be detecting a certain pattern. In essence, the Calvinist says, and many who are not Calvinist who hold to some form of unconditional salvation, they in essence will say, even if a person has convinced anyone, including themselves, that they are a believer by the scriptural standards, if they ever fall away, it proves they never were. Perhaps this is why John Calvin came up with the idea of evanescent grace, where he believed even the reprobate can be almost indistinguishable from the true believer. In Book 3, Chapter 2, Section 11 of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin said, as a longer quote, but I want to read it, quote, this is John Calvin, he says, I am aware it seems unaccountable to some how faith is attributed to the reprobate, seeing that it is declared by Paul to be one of the fruits of election, and yet the difficulty is easily solved, for though none are enlightened into faith and truly feel the efficacy of the gospel, with the exception of those who are foreordained to salvation, yet experience shows that the reprobate are sometimes affected in a way so similar to the elect that even in their own judgment there is no difference between them. Hence, it is not strange that by the apostle a taste of heavenly gifts and by Christ himself a temporary faith is ascribed to them. Not that they truly perceive the power of spiritual grace and the sure light of faith, but the Lord, the better to convict them, and leave them without excuse, instills into their minds such a sense of his goodness as can be felt without the spirit of adoption, end quote. So to John Calvin, because he would never question his doctrine, it didn't matter how much it appeared that someone was truly partaking of spiritual life in Christ. If they fell away, he declared them reprobate from the beginning. In fact, reading through his answers, you can see that this was his and most Calvinist position. Um, Visibly, I have a chart here laid out, and some of you who um, may uh, be partakers of Bible study here and everything, I've shown you this chart before, but I'll try to describe this to you because there's three columns, and in the left column, the leftmost column, there is a statement, a description of someone. The middle column, it has saved with saving grace, and the right column, damned with evanescent grace. And let's just see where these line up in John Calvin's mind, and many Calvinists today. Okay, is there a sense of grace in the person? Well, yes, with those who were truly saved with saving grace, and yes, according to John Calvin, those damned with evanescent grace. That is his completely made-up concept where God begraces a lost person enough to deceive them to thinking they are actually saved. But they never were, according to John Calvin. So, in both of these camps, this person has a sense of grace. That is God's grace. In both cases, there is a sense in the person of the internal working of the Spirit of God. Those truly saved and those not saved. In both cases, they appear to be saved outwardly. So, even those saved with saving grace and those damned with evanescent grace, according to John Calvin. He says both appear to be saved. Um, Do they believe they have faith? Well, according to John Calvin, 
the saved with saving grace do, and the damned with evanescent grace do. Um, do they believe they're saved? Well, according to John Calvin, the saved with saving grace do, and the damned with evanescent grace do. And here's the real clincher. Are they actually saved? According to John Calvin, those saved with saving grace, yes. And according to John Calvin, those damned with evanescent grace, no. So how then would it be possible to have any true assurance of your salvation if sometime in the future you could still prove to have never have been saved in the first place? Is this any kind of assurance? No, it's not. And this is why Calvinists will almost always say something to this effect. Quote, We may entertain the faith of our security in Christ only as we persevere in faith and holiness to the end. Now, here's the thing. In a different context, I would completely agree with that. If you want to say, I am in Christ and I am secure in Christ, you can only even begin to say that applies to you if you are walking by faith in Christ and living in holiness. That is the only thing. The difference is Calvinists mean something completely different. If you've gone to church for any number of years, you undoubtedly will have at least once been confused by the standards that are applied to determine whether or not someone is saved or not. Um, and this is why once saved, always saved teachers must move the goalposts about how to have assurance of salvation, and or they must undo any sense of biblical assurance of salvation. Because here's the point. If it is only when you persevere until the end that you can prove you are a true believer, then you cannot truly prove that you're a believer until the end. This is not a new new argument. This is something that the Wesleyans, uh, the John Wesley and them, even at the beginning, openly wrote about. The critics of Calvinism and what he was doing in Geneva and these systems, they saw this contradiction very plainly. And so, because if you're basing it, and I'm going to try to parse this out a little bit more, because some people might not be used to trying to think through these theological points and doctrinal points very much. And that's not meant to be an insult, it's just true. A lot of of time we don't spend time really thinking about these things, okay? If the standard for whether or not a person was ever truly saved to begin with is whether or not they continue in faith until their death, then as long as you are alive, there remains the possibility that you will fall into sin and thus prove that you were never saved to begin with. Do you understand logically where this goes? But here's the thing. If you go biblically, you don't have that problem. If you just base assurance of salvation on whether or not you are following Christ now, in the present, and you can say, I presently know that I am in Christ and following Christ. Do I have promise about the future? Yes, I do. I have promise in a different manner than eternal security. But you don't have this contradiction, which makes you to where you don't have any assurance. Because you're basing assurance on the present, which is what assurance is. It is assurance that you presently have eternal life. If you try to mix something about the future and say you are guaranteed the future, one, that's nowhere stated in Scripture. It's not. You are not guaranteed to go to heaven. And any passage that you just thought of to try and say, well, no, of course we're guaranteed heaven— you will, if you pull open your Bible and read five verses in front of it, five verses after it, you will see a condition attached to it, saying, a believer, that means they have to be a believer. 
and all the things attached to how to be a believer, what it means to identify a believer. There's repentance. If you continue in sin, unrepentant, you don't, you don't have any assurance of salvation. Presently, stop conflating and combining the idea of assurance of salvation with some form of unconditional promise for tomorrow or the eternity. That is why there is getting this contradiction. So I want to work through this a little bit, okay? But this is why they necessarily must change what assurance is based on. They want assurance today, and they want to keep their doctrine. And if that's you, I'm sorry, that's just true, because I taught eternal security for years. And I've talked to a lot of people about this, pastors, teachers. I have yet to find somebody who can actually give me reasons outside of what they have been repeated. And every single pastor, preacher, and teacher gives the exact same reasons that are equally unbiblical. So I want you to consider this example of a situation to give you a practical, real-world scenario, which if you are a pastor, you almost assuredly have had something like this happen. If you've been a pastor for a decade or two, you most likely, unless your whole definition about what a Christian is, is completely off base. Or if you don't believe that you're supposed to exercise church discipline, but then you have even greater problems in being a pastor. But if you are a normal, evangelical, conservative Christian, and you are trying to base the way that you do things on the scriptures, this situation you have in some way, shape, or form seen, heard of, or at least one degree removed from seeing, okay? So here's the example. A man gets converted. He begins reading the Bible and applies it to his life. He continues this way for several years. He gets involved in the local church and becomes a normal, productive member of that church. After some years, due to some life situation possibly, the man becomes angry, depressed, and starts drinking to the point of being drunk regularly. Let's say his family gets killed in a car wreck or something like that, right? It deeply affects him emotionally, okay? He starts drinking to the point of being drunk regularly. He's just not handling it very well. A brother takes notice and goes to encourage him to put away the sin and draw strength from the Lord. The man does not listen. He continues to drink until he's drunk. The brother talks to an elder, and they both go to speak to the man. Again, he does not listen. Finally, they bring the matter to the pastor and the other elders. The man is invited before the church and again does not listen. He refuses to put away the sin. The church enacts 1 Corinthians 5 and separates fellowship from him unless he openly repents. Now, this is a basic example about church discipline, right? So, But here's the question. Was this man a true believer in the beginning? I want you to think about that. Was that man truly a believer in the beginning? Okay, now what about now? What about at the end of it? Okay? Now, for the Calvinistic teacher... The man was never saved in the first place because he did not endure to the end. Because let's say he died, right, not about a year or so after that, never having repented. Well, they would say, well, the man was never saved to begin with. Uh, their view of his perseverance of the saints, right? He would have persevered in the faith until the end. Well, for the more liberal teacher, the man is still saved because he was converted at some time in the past and is eternally secure because all his future sins are forgiven also. 
Notwithstanding what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I know what people do to cast that passage aside, saying, and such were some of you. Yes, he's talking to the people at Corinth. They were those things. They were not doing those things anymore. That is why he had confidence in their their assurance of salvation, right? If they were still doing those things, they would not have assurance of salvation. He would have no reason to consider them to be believers. And some people will say, well, even though God doesn't see your sin, I'm sorry, that is wholly unbiblical, wholly unbiblical. Well, God doesn't see my sin. Really? In the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, how many times does he say, I know thy works? I know thy works. I know thy works. Otherwise, how can he separate fellowship from you when you're living in sin? Right? Because you only have fellowship with him as you walk in the light as he is in the light. If you're not following him, you're walking in darkness. Are you saying Christ walks in darkness with you? Absolutely unbiblical. Now, depending on when you apply the standards of assurance of salvation as set forth in Scripture to this example, you will get different answers for whether or not this man has assurance. I want you to think about this. And this is easier if you can picture in your mind kind of a a line chart, right? A timeline of this whole situation. You have his conversion. You have this first rebuke from a brother saying, hey, you need to get this sin out of your life. And then you have a second rebuke where he brings... That man, the brother brings an elder with him saying, hey, we need to go talk to him. He, puts, he needs to put this sin out of his life. The man doesn't listen. Then you have the third rebuke, right? Where he, they talk to the pastors and elders, bring it before the church and separate from the man, right? You know, according to 1 Corinthians 5, you're not supposed to esteem that man to be a believer unless he repents. And then you esteem him to be a believer again. If he doesn't repent, guess what? You esteem him to be a lost person, right? So, and there's the two possibilities after that third rebuke. If the man does not repent and then dies, right? And then there's the other one. He repents, gets right with God, puts the sin away, right? And then dies sometime after there, right? Now, along that timeline, let's ask something. Ask yourself, what if we apply the specific things that John says were written so that she may know that she have eternal life, 1 John 5, 13. What about if we applied that shortly after his conversion? Well, he's keeping the commandments of God, he's reading his Bible, he's fellowshipping with believers, he does not, he's not living in sin. Well, yes, of course he has assurance of salvation. Okay, what about at his first rebuke, whenever this brother comes and says, hey, you know, hey, you're living in sin, you need to get this out of your life. Here, come on, let's go, let's draw strength from the Lord, and the Lord will help you to get victory over this, okay? And the man says no, and he continues in sin. Well, according to 1 John, that man does not have assurance of salvation. Well, what about at his second rebuke, where he bring, the one brother brings an elder back and says, hey, let's go talk to him, let's try to encourage him to put away this sin, right? The man does not listen. He says, no, I'm not going to put this sin away. This is what I, I'm just, I'm, maybe he's bitter, maybe he's angry at God, maybe he's upset, whatever. Well, no, he wouldn't have assurance of salvation because he's, he's not bringing forth the fruits of righteousness. He's not keeping the commandments of God, which says you're not supposed to be a drunkard. What about his third rebuke, whenever he's brought before the congregation? Well, no, because he continuing continuing to live in sin. He's not keeping the commandments of God and therefore has no reason to have assurance of salvation. Now, here's the thing. At that point, the church, according to 1 Corinthians 5, separates from him and esteems him to be a lost person, which completely lines up. 
he has no assurance of salvation because he's not keeping the commandments of God. And that church does not give him any assurance of salvation either. They don't esteem him to be a Christian. They esteem him to be a lost person, right? Separated from the fold of God's people. Not even supposed to eat with them in that sense, is what Paul says. Now, here's a question. What if from that point on, he didn't repent until he died? He died in sin. The church was never supposed to have accepted him back in fellowship, never supposed to have esteemed him to be a believer because he didn't repent. And he didn't have assurance of salvation, according to 1 John. He wasn't keeping the commandments of God. Now, here's the thing. What if he repented and he put away the sin and got back to the state he was in the beginning of reading the Bible, continuing to seek to keep God's word in all areas of his life, and just seeking to just really just walk by faith in Christ? Well, then he would have assurance of salvation. Do you see what happens when you apply the biblical standard of assurance of salvation? Is he keeping the commandments of God? Right? Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And he says, anyone who loves me, they keep my commandments. And he says, if you, you say that you love me and you don't keep my commandments, you're a liar. Why are so many pastors, preachers, and teachers lying then? It's a, the book of Ezekiel. It says the false prophets would go around and say that they would make the heart of the, heart of the people, sad, God's heart, sad because they promised the wicked life, which is exactly what many pastors and preachers are doing. They're promising those who are living in wickedness and rebellion to God life based on their assumed doctrinal stance of eternal security, once saved, always saved, or Calvinism. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11-13, Paul said at the end of that passage in church discipline, he says, But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, that is outside the fold of God's people, God judges. He says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. That person is not supposed to have fellowship. You're not supposed to esteem them to be a believer. This is based on uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17, where um, Christ says, If your brother sins, so notice he's assumed to be a brother, go and show him his fault in private. There's the first rebuke. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Right? That's where you go and you bring an elder or somebody with you. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So there's a third time. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, which understand is assuming that he belongs to that church, right? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Those people who were considered outside the fold of God, right? The people who had no claim to the promises of God's people. And Christ commanded us to esteem that person who refuses to repent as not right with God anymore. Where in the beginning, they were esteemed to be a person. That in all things, until this sin, they were esteemed to belong to that, that fellowship, right? Now, the fact that biblical assurance of salvation can be applied to this real-world scenario, which happens all the time, and can consider someone to have assurance at one point, biblically, then no assurance at another, biblically, shows irrefutably that salvation is conditional. But that's exactly what people don't want to be true. They want their assurance to be based on um, their belief that it's not conditional. You know, well, you know, their assurance is based on whether or not you believe once saved, always saved, eternal security, or perseverance of the saints. Or they want their assurance of salvation to be based on the fact that at one time they did follow him. No, I'm sorry, that's not it. 
or to be based on the fact that they believe in God. I'm sorry, that's not it either. Or the fact that they prayed the prayer and asked Jesus into their hearts. I'm sorry, that's not biblical either. Or because someone else told them they're saved, which is also not biblical either. I have met people who have said any one of these things to say, well, they're clinging to it because they know they don't fit the biblical qualification to have assurance of salvation. I have seen people with a death grip on these things. You can't convince them that it's not true because they don't want to give up their sin, but they want to go to heaven. You know, and there's so many people that turn away when they see the biblical standards of what it means to truly be a follower of Christ. I honestly believe if we had people stop telling people they're eternally secure when you're presenting the gospel to them, they've never really understood things at any point at all, and you tell them they're eternally secure because if God said it, then then he's not going to change it, right? And God didn't change anything, yet that person is just repeatedly repeating false things, and you're telling all these people they were eternally secure before they repented, before they brought forth the fruits of repentance, before they were ever abiding in Christ, before they even opened a Bible to really read it for themselves, and you're inoculating them against true salvation. And that person spends the majority of the rest of their life trying to find assurance of things that God said nothing about. And you have some people that get completely shut out Because although they don't want to go to hell, they're unwilling to gain heaven at such a cost as giving up their sin. So what's biblical about final salvation? If assurance of salvation is only about whether or not we are presently saved and in Christ, then do we have any promises about the future? Absolutely. But it's conditional. If you continue to believe, if you continue to walk by faith in Christ, then you can be assured of your final salvation. And I want you to think about this. If I say, I'm going to the grocery store, I have decided to go to the grocery store, and you can rightly ask me, are you going to the grocery store? Did you go to the grocery store? If I haven't got up to actually go, I'm not any closer to the grocery store. Let's say I get in my car and I start heading in the direction of the grocery store because I live in this neighborhood. I know where it's going. If at any point between here and the grocery store, I turn away and turn to some other way, I'm not going to the grocery store anymore. Right? But here's the thing. If I continue in the direction I know leads to the grocery store, I can be assured of where I will end up. That's biblical salvation in a nutshell. If you repent of your sins, put your faith in Christ, and begin to walk by faith in Christ alone for salvation, right? And you continue walking by faith in Christ, you can be assured of where you will be going because you're continuing in the state that gives you assurance of salvation. That is if you look through all the promises in the New Testament about salvation, you will see that conditionality stated in Colossians chapter 1, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, by which you are saved, if you continue. Why do so many people have a problem with this? The fact of the matter is, most people have a problem with stating that salvation is conditional because at a certain level, they know they are not actually living the life they need to. 
I was talking to one man one time. He's a preacher. Been to, you know, been to Bible college, seminary, all that kind of stuff, right? Guess what? He argued with me for 45 minutes. I didn't pick the argument. He did. And he said, and I argued with me for 45 minutes. I know the doctrine backward and forward because I used to believe it and teach it. And I was finishing his sentences, finishing the arguments, and then stating objectively why it's wrong to where he didn't disagree. At the end of 45 minutes of him sitting there trying to find something desperately, he stopped talking and he got quiet and he said, if that's true, that makes me very afraid. Why would it? You see, if I'm wrong, and the weight of biblical verses and context is on my side, but if I'm wrong, I don't have skeletons in my closet that I'm afraid of. I'm walking by faith in Christ. Am I perfect in the sense that have I reached that point of sinless perfection? No, but I press towards the mark, the same thing as Paul. I deal with sin in my life by confessing it, putting it away. When somebody points out a fault in my life, I deal with it as quickly as I can. I don't want there to be something between me and God. I'm following Christ. My life reflects it. Am I growing? Absolutely. Am I further along than I was 10 years ago? Absolutely. But I'm walking and I'm pressing towards the mark. And the fact of the matter is, many pastors, preachers, and teachers, they know there is an area of their life that they are not as vigilant as they need to be. They are keeping God out of it. God's not in every part. Their life is compartmentalized. You know, what you watch on TV, the fact that you sit around watching TV. Do you really labor in prayer? Do you really care about your thought life? Everything matters to God. And that's why a lot of people, they don't really want Christ to be their life. They really don't. They want to go to heaven, and they want the bar to be very, very low. There is no bar. The bar was met by Christ. What's your job? Your job is to walk by faith in Christ. It's all His. You gave it to Him, if you're a believer. So instead of asserting or guaranteeing the future without any qualifications, the Bible simply says, continue in the faith, and you'll be fine. That's biblical assurance of salvation. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.